Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And once again, welcome to the Back of the Range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 164. I hope that you have enjoyed the two feature episodes released earlier this week where I spoke with Dan Hicks, the voice of the U.S. Open, will be on the call for NBC and yesterday's guest on episode 163, the legendary instructor who grew up at Wingfoot, Butch Harmon. They're available in Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you listen to the back of the range. I also promised a surprise, an episode that I have been looking forward to recording for quite some time. Through some luck and good fortune, I'm releasing this special U.S. Open episode on the day that the action takes place at Wingfoot. My guest is Hale Irwin, three-time U.S. Open winner and the last man standing at the massacre at Wingfoot in 1974. In 1974, a 29-year-old from Boulder, Colorado added his name to the U.S. Open trophy and was the third man at the time that could say he won our national championship at Wingfoot. The other two were Bobby Jones and Billy Casper. While the narrative that week was the difficulty of the golf course, somebody was going to fight through the brutal rough and manage the treacherous greens of Wingfoot. Somebody was going to accept the challenge and be mentally sharper than anyone in the field. It might not have been pretty. He might have been bruised and bloodied, but in the end, Hale Irwin was the 1974 U.S. Open champion. We spoke about the lead-up to the championship, some of the highlights, and also how he views this win, along with his other countless accolades that led him into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1992. A very special thanks to the Irwin family as well as Swingwell Labs. Swingwell Labs products are designed to link mind and body while elevating overall well-being and day-to-day performance in the office, on the course, or wherever you need a little plant-based pickup. For more information, check out SwingwellLabs.com. That link is in the show notes of this episode. But for now, it's a thrill to welcome to the back of the range. Hale Irwin. Hale, how are you? Well, I'm doing very well under these trying circumstances in which we find ourselves now, but all in all, doing doing nicely. Uh, you know, hopeful that we can kind of get back to whatever the new normal is one of these days and get back on the golf course with, with people and, and in, enjoy the, the game for what it is. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's a special week for you and your, your family, obviously, being U.S. Open week. You just talked about getting back on the golf course. You know, we'll... we'll I'll ask you a couple questions about uh, that pretty well-known championship you won in 74 at Wingfoot, but you just mentioned, like I said, going back out on the golf course. Tell me about the state of affairs of your game right now. Well, the uh, the life and times of Hale Irwin's golf game are uh, <laughs> <laughs> are probably things better uh, positioned to tell about and pass stories. I'm, I'm not playing that much uh, simply because – I think a couple of years ago in particular, maybe three years ago there, I won't say there's a change in my, my life. That's not it. But I think the focus on what I was doing, I was not playing that spectacularly. I wasn't playing to the level that I felt like that I could play. The, the shots were not 
coming off as frequently uh, as they should have to keep the scoring at a level that was at least uh, competitive. Sure. I, I found myself driving the ball short of the same places, courses that we had played time and time again. I, I was hitting a little shorter. and You know, maybe rather than hitting a seven iron, now I'm hitting a six iron. And you do that over a 54, 72 holes, and it, it starts adding up. Those shots now are a little farther away from the hole, and the putts get a little more difficult. And So anyway, long story short is I th- just think my focus got a little bit sideways, and then I had a little bit of an injury to my left foot, which kind of altered my swing enough to make a difference in, in how I swung at the ball. Um the only correction was really surgery. And I didn't want to do that because I can still walk. I can still get around. I can still play just not with the frequency that I once did. So longer story than what you need to hear, but short story is I'm, I'm playing a little, not very much. Uh, I can do the outings and you know, the one day stuff that I enjoy that. And that's absolutely no problem. But if I get into an extended length of time, day after day, whether it's practicing or playing or a combination, then I, I get uh, the foot starts hurting a little bit. And then I get all discombobulated in the brain. And, you know, I said, what am I doing here? I'm right. 75 now. Yeah. What am I trying to do here? I'm, I'm trying to reinvent the wheel. It's, it's a pretty good wheel. I, so, I, I we'll was, gonna, yeah, your, your wheel has uh your wheel has a lot of spokes in it, so to speak, uh, you know, <laughs> getting, uh, you know, a world golf hall of fame induction, 92 and all time leading winner on the champions tour. Then gosh, there's where, where do we start? Where do we begin? But, uh, I, I, you know, a lot of the narrative of wing foot and of your victory in 74 was this positive attitude that you had and you, you accepted what the golf course was giving you and, and everyone else there. But I actually wanted to talk about and see if there's anything you could share about your appearance in the U S open in 1966, which you get in as an amateur, you're 21 years old. This is, this is, you know, very famous U S open. It's Olympic. It's where Casper came back with this incredible, you know, comeback to beat Palmer. You made the cut. You were there all four days. Is there anything in that U S open that stuck with you moving into your professional career where you saw like, Oh, wow, you know, this is the guy, this is Palmer at the top of his game. And you know, anything can happen during a championship, did you carry anything out of that U S open leading into your professional career that may have contributed to your positive attitude at, at, at Wingfoot? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, uh, maybe more generally speaking, uh, my background in sports, uh, you playing college football on a scholarship there, uh, pretty active as a younger person in baseball, yeah, I've done quite a bit of that through the years. A lot of high school basketball, football, golf. I, I thought it was fast and track, but I wasn't. But anyway, uh, I, I think that really helped in the competitive instincts that I've had through the years. And when I got to Olympic Club, and as one of my hopes as a young player coming up, uh, developing player, if I could ever qualify, and I did. Uh, and I got to play at Olympic Club, and I I did get to see Palmer, and I did get to see Casper, and I remember looking through the pro shop window, seeing Tony Lima on the tee. You know, I saw all these people that I had heard of and never seen before, and all of that, I think, was really a positive reinforcement that these people, hey, you know, they're walking the locker room just like I did. You know, they may play better golf than I. They're all older. They're more experienced, but, you know, I'm on the same golf course with them. 
And, you know, I made the cut and some of them didn't. And, and I think it was a, a big boost in my confidence, albeit it, it not, uh, not a great boost because I think I had, I realized I had so much to learn. And it's what I found out very quickly is when you're trying to get ready for a U.S. Open championship, you better have your game together because yeah. it's going it's going to extract from you a, a your best effort, and it's is going to demand that you hit the ball in the fairway and you hit it on the greens. Well, for me, that was a, a proving ground that I had work to do. Uh, I didn't have miles and miles to go. I just had a long way to go. Sure. Well, you had, I mean, a nice a nice run up to 74. I, I definitely don't want to communicate to listeners that this was just your breakout. I mean, you already had two PGA Tour wins at uh, at the Heritage and your your major record, you were I mean, as they say now, you you were trending. I mean, starting playing professional majors in 1970, you had a lot of top 25s and the you know, had the Masters and the US Open. Um, you know, leading into that tournament, uh, how how were you feeling before you got to Wingfoot to see what was in store for you and everyone else? But um, how was your season progressing that way, where you were kind of leading yourself into, hey, I, I think I can be successful at this uh, at this championship? As you say, I was trending in a positive direction, uh, and more immediately, the week before, I had uh, tied for second down in Philadelphia, so I was coming up feeling pretty good about things. Uh, I felt my game was reasonably good but no one knew what wingfoot had in store until we got there and then it was uh i think for many players very demoralizing because it was so demanding the rough was so extremely difficult just the whole golf course was asking or demanding nothing but the best and i think that uh that weighed on a lot of players minds now i'm not saying i was any different but i think and that's why I referenced earlier my athletic career. I think you get yourself set for difficult games. You get yourself set for difficult opponents. You get your mindset on the task at hand, and that's sort of stay in the current. Forget about the last play. Forget about what, what may be. Let's talk about what it is right now. And you had to do that at Wingfoot. You had to really understand that you were against an opponent that was extremely difficult, and you were not going to beat this opponent. The best thing to do is to stay out of out of reach of the knockout punch. Sure. And and just kind of dance around and do what you could uh, to stay upright. Because literally, it was, as you could attest by the score, only two players in single digits over par. Um, the rest were double digits. And some great players posted some pretty high scores. <laughs> it was It was very difficult. And. Uh, and I think that more than how I was playing the week before, or how I was trending, I think it was an attitude that you had to have going into that week to really survive. And I know it's been mentioned several times about that locker room was just kind of like the walking dead of just like guys that just were just so depressed. I mean, I think I read somewhere that Jim Colbert, after he got done, he went out in his car and just screamed for 10 minutes. Um, I'm sure that there were a, a couple beers being knocked down after a long day. Does anything stick out in your mind in a locker room you've been in? I mean, you've been in Ryder Cup uh, team rooms. You've been, uh, you know, at the locker room at the Masters. You've been, I mean, you've been all over the world. I think you've won on every continent you've ever played on. I mean, you have seen and done it all. 
did that locker room can you think of anything in that locker room that you're like wow this is this is different than what i've ever seen well i think it was the vibes there were so uh it was either as you say players screaming and yelling or they were totally quiet uh they were either in shock and then coming out of shock created a, a little bit of antipathy towards what they were trying to do so um that's what i recall on a, a tuesday wednesday was the the doom and gloom the negative <laughs> comments from the players and i'm i remember telling myself you know 70% of these guys have all checked out they're they're not going to they're not going to make it and I thought, well, you know, if, if I can just hang in there and, and compete against the other 30%, who knows what can happen? Sure. And so you just kind of give it that and, and not say, hey, I can win this because that wasn't it at all. It was just try to maintain an equilibrium. Don't get down in the dumps. Don't become one of the locker room belly acres. Be one of the guys that goes out there and tries to find a way to get around this golf course. I was just on the USGA's press conference before the uh, before the championship starts tomorrow, and and I I can't remember the exact phrasing of the question, but they one comment they made about it is that we're just going to let Wingfoot be Wingfoot, and I think they're that uh, John Bonehammer was referencing, you know, we're we're not trying to make it harder, we're not trying to trick anything up, we're just basically this is what Wingfoot looks like in September last year, and this is what it's going to look like next September. And as everyone knows that that knows the history of this championship, you know, there's, uh, gosh, the, the great Sandy Tatum said, you know, we're not trying to embarrass the best players in the world. We're trying to identify them. Uh, you know, some people feel that the course was a reaction to uh, Johnny Miller's 63 at, at Oakmont the previous year. Did you feel that they were just basically letting Wingfoot be Wingfoot then in 74? Or do you think that there was maybe a different motive that year do you, did, i mean i know it's been several years and you've probably spoken about this to several people but how do you kind of frame up what you think the course was that week well i, I think first of all we we have to understand that johnny miller played one heck of a final round oh, yeah. at oakmont uh, granted there had been some rain the night before and the greens were relatively soft sunday but no one else shot 63 johnny played extremely well now did the USGA look at that and say, well, we can't have that? Well, perhaps, but uh, they didn't let Wingfoot be Wingfoot because if the members had to play in rough that was anywhere from six inches to 12 inches long, I would say I'd find myself another club yeah. to join. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now they may be saying that this year, let's just say in 74 as difficult that was we played again there in 84 and the conditions were anything like they were in 74 so i think indeed they got back to letting wingfoot be more like wingfoot than it was in 74 um but i'm i'm kind of of the school that i i think we should have the venues and those venues should be prepared to ask the players for exacting games for them to have to come in and you just can't luck your way through a good round. You've got to play a good round and, and, and to identify is your long game good? Is your short game good? Uh, and you, you have to identify the facets of the game of golf that make you uh, a championship player. Sure. And if, if you let many courses in today's game with today's players and how and the technology, they will overpower it. And uh, so I'm, I, I don't know how to, we, we saw earlier this year at the Memorial, Jack got some rough out there and how difficult the players had. Uh, we saw it at, 
at where was it the the tour championship they they play in that Bermuda rough you know when you have rough and you have guys that are playing the ball out of the rough they're not going to hit the second shots as crisply and as close to the pin as perhaps they might ordinarily so I, I think you do have to identify accuracy off the tee and if that in today's game calls for heavier rough then I think you should I, I don't I hope the USA doesn't back off of that I understand let wing foot be wing foot but there, there's some cost of, with that identification. Sure. You know, another interesting thing about that is about 74 is like, you know, when we're watching a golf channel and we're watching the, the best players in the world with their caddies and their coaches and their, their physio teams, you were out there with a, with a club caddy at Wingfoot, a 16 year old kid. And I don't think you had a team around you. Can you imagine players these days trying to go to a place like Wingfoot with, just a local caddy and not having the, the benefit of, I mean, what, what you guys were able to do back then is incredible because you did not have your own caddies. You had the club caddy. Well, it's, it's going to sound old school, but no, I, I, I think if I was playing in today's game, I'd probably want to be one of the single individuals out there that didn't have anyone around me. Yeah. And, and I say that not in disrespect, but I say that because I'm the one that's hitting that shot. I'm the one that is nervous. My caddy or my coach or my trainer or my uh, whomever, they're not. I'm the one that has to figure out what I feel like, what shot can I play? Am I going to hasten my, my, just my walking pace? Uh, do I need to slow down? You have to figure out who and what you are under those conditions. And if someone's telling me that all the time, then I don't know as I can, I really identify who I am under those conditions. Uh, Again, I think the players are extremely talented now. But as as you say, there is a team around them. In 74, no one, and I literally <laughs> no one, had that kind of a, a team. Well, very few had an instructor. I think Jack had, uh, Nicholas had Jack Grout out of Columbus that he saw periodically. Arnie Palmer had his father back right. in the probe. Uh, but that's about it. So uh, guys had individual swings, you know, from 200 yards away, you can see a guy swinging to immediately who that was right? just by the very nature of their swing. And uh, today's game, I dare say, when I look at these players from 200 yards away, uh, they all look very much like they're good golf swings, but they're very much the same. And, and there's, uh, there's, there are individual characters back in those days that we don't see quite so many of now N nice young men today and nice young ladies, but they don't have those singular characteristics that one might identify with a golf swing or a personality that they used to have. I, uh, I was watching them. It's very well said. I was watching a lot, a lot of the guys practice on the range and they're kind of tinkering with, uh, you know, maybe a 64 degree wedge, or maybe they're, you know, dropping a two iron out of the bag and adding a hybrid that'll help them get through the rough. Can you tell me what was in your bag in 74? Same thing that was in my bag the week before and the week after. <laughs> we didn't change clubs. You didn't have that luxury of changing clubs. You know, I had a, these were all wooden headed clubs, steel shaft. I had a driver and a three wood and a four wood, and then a, a two iron on down to the pitching wedge and one sand wedge and, and a putter. That was the yep. 14 clubs that just about everyone played with in those days. Uh, we didn't have the luxury of a, of a third wedge. We didn't have the, the um, ability that uh, the players have now to go to a 
repair trailer right there on site and, and get a club fixed or get a new one made just almost instantly. We didn't have that. So you had to make do with what you had. And in fact, a, a quick little story sure. is a lot of players, a number of players, I don't say a lot, but if you, if you felt like your club was, maybe you weren't hitting that seven iron quite as far as you, you go over and find a tree root and beat on the tree root. Cause the, until you kind of felt like you'd bent it enough <laughs> to get, get the right flight. Uh, Arnold, you know, Arnold was very strong hands for him. So he'd go over take his drivers and he'd just sort of bend them in his hands. Uh, <laughs> So, but that's, that was quote technology. Then, uh, they may come out of the factory being whatever they were, but after a period of time, the, the metals and the irons, for instance, were a little softer. So after a period of time, they would bend. So you'd have to either take them back to the factory to the same line loft machine, let's say, and get them redone or find your nearest tree root and start beating on it. I think we all did that. That's uh that that's incredible. Did um, I, I was just thinking, you know, Saracen's shot at the Masters, you know, the shot heard around the world. He, I think, he famously said, "Yeah, I had so many people come up to me telling me that they were there." And of course, there was like eighteen people in the gallery. There could not have been that <laughs> many people there, but there sure were a lot of people at Wingfoot for the '74. Throughout the years, I'm guessing you must have heard some incredible stories from people saying that they were there and they saw it and they saw how difficult it was. It must be a thrill to just have uh, for people to come up and tell you, like, hey, I was there during the massacre at Wingfoot. Well, it is. I, I think perhaps the, the 74 U.S. Open was uh, more identifiable with people because they saw the best players in the world struggling, as, as they might on a golf course. I think when you see guys going, uh, as Dustin Johnson did, 30 under par, I, I can't even relate to that. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, but when they're struggling at over par and the player or the person at home or on the goer says, Hey, I can do that. Uh, so I, I think there was a, a great bit of identification, particularly in the New York market. When you got the penultimate, here we are Wingfoot, and, and here's the U S open, you know, the microscope was, was on big time. Uh, or the telescope, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> there you go. And, and people, people could see and could identify with that. It's hard to identify with something that is when players are shooting 15, 20, 30 under par. That, that's hard to identify. Um, just a couple more, then I'll let you get out of here. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the fact that you, you, you know, win the 74 U.S. Open for your first major, and obviously you win again in 79, and then. And then you're also, I mean, I hate to bring age into it, but back back in the when you're in the nine in nineteen ninety, you know, you're the oldest winner of the US Open as well in nineteen ninety at Medina. Was was the challenge of Wingfoot trying to get your first major compared to trying to, you know, you got in as a special exemption in ninety. Can you think back to maybe exhaustion or how much different those two experiences were? I mean, you got the same result, you picked up the win, you picked up the trophy. But I'm just thinking you got to go to an 18-hole playoff against Mike Donald. That goes into sudden death versus just 72 holes of brutal golf at Wingfoot. Do you remember which one after the at the end of both where you're just like, wow, that really took a lot out of me? Well, uh, any victory does, honestly. But specifically to the three US Open championships, they all were so different and coming into the weeks, uh, the, the period of time in my career, uh, maybe the more important element of my life was the development and maturity that my family was experiencing and, 
and I with them. Uh, the the 79 open seems to kind of get lost in the shuffle because yeah. of, uh, but it was at a time that where I really needed to kind of reprove myself. And I had an opportunity there. Uh, I had a very poor first round at, at Inverness in 79. And, and I was focused on really just trying to make the cut, um, which I did. I played two very good middle rounds, which propelled me into a, a lead going into the final round, which some people might say, well, you, when you've got a, well, it's a four shot, five shot, whatever it was, uh, you're going to win. Well, you expect that, but you really don't know how to play that because you've never been there before. So the learning curve there was try to increase that lead. Uh, you can't play safe. And, and that's what I learned. I made the almost fatal mistake on the 71st tee. I had a five shot lead and I, kind of congratulated myself way to go you won your second u.s open i immediately went double bogey bogey yep uh, so whereas i had a five shot lead i still won by two but boy i was on the ropes and i'd put myself on the rope so you, you have to have that capability to get it done we have to have the ability to recognize that's not the way to do it and uh so when the 90 open came around i was entered the last round and i'd give it a little uh advice of Billy Ray Brown, who one of the co-leaders said, hey, what's, what advice might you give? And I said, well, Billy, you're playing well. Uh, you know, hit the shots you feel comfortable hitting. You know, be aggressive when you feel like you need to, but, you know, be smart. Play smart golf. And I went to the tee thinking, hey, that's pretty good advice. Why don't you try that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, idiot, why don't you try that? And uh, so I, I went out, I was paired with Greg Norman, and as the round progressed, so Greg birdied 10. I thought, you know, if he just makes another couple of birdies, he, he might have an outside chance. But I got focused on my game. The top 15 get in the following year in the U.S. Open. And I was one shot out of the then top 15. So on the 11th tee, I said, okay, one under here in. And this is, and I, I, I don't mean to make a long story. No, about you're this, fine. You are. You it, it, really, yeah. it, it really, I think, identified how to reset goals, at least for me. So I set that goal. And I immediately buried 11. I said, okay, now I'm being aggressive with my goals. Let's say let's top 10. And I birdied 12. And I thought, boy, this is good. Let's top five. And I birdied 13. Now I'm thinking, uh, I'm not going to talk about anything more than that, but let's just keep going. I birdied 14. So here I've, I've birdied four in a row. I've gone out of the top 15. Now I'm one stroke back of the then lead. And after parring 15, 16, 17, that's why the big long putt at 18 was so dramatic is that it got me in the clubhouse in the lead. It got me at, at that point in time tied for the lead, but never did I think it would win outright. And I never fooled myself thinking that those guys that were playing behind me were not capable of doing the same thing. So uh, as it ended up, knock on wood, I, I ended up with Mike and I had the, the playoff the next day. For me, the next day was an exciting time, but I drained so much energy the day before. It was, I was very flat starting out, and oh, Mike yeah. had a Mike had uh, the advantage the whole day. And it wasn't until I kind of woke up there at the last. Uh, I made a great birdie at 16. Uh, I was two shots down with three to play, and I birdied 16 with two wonderful shots. And unfortunately for Mike, he made a, a bogey at 18. And then we went to a true playoff, and I birdied the first hole. Yeah. So, uh, the things that I had learned throughout my career really helped me in that 
last uh, official or the last uh, round on Sunday. And then I think towards the end of the day helped me a lot on Monday. And it's just, again, experience and the things that you learn about yourself that you can apply at times like that. Well, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. I, I could listen to you tell stories for hours. We didn't even talk about the 91 uh, Ryder Cup, and I, there's all sorts of things. Hopefully I can ask you again at some future time. And then, obviously, Champions Tour and, and just – oh, and by the way, you, you won the week after you win the 90 U.S. Open, you get in the car and you go win the next tour event. I don't know how you did that. I, I love well, – I, I mean, because I mean, I'm thinking you got a Monday playoff – and then you got to get in the car and or get in the flight. And, I mean, your head's got to be all over the place, and then you go win. That doesn't happen well, very often. No, my wife and daughter, we were they were in Chicago with me, or they drove up from St. Louis. We were living in St. Louis at the time. My son was playing in a junior tournament, and and so after the win, the you know the spoils of being a champion, you get what's left of the cold pizza. So that's what we. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we ate on the way back to St. Louis. Got back here after midnight, and and now Tuesday was the day full of phone calls and repacking sure. and trying to. Uh, so I got up, caught the first flight I could, the dawn o'clock flight to LaGuardia, and was met at the airport there, taken literally to the golf course without going to the hotel. Went right to the tee with no warm up. And played my pro-am day. And now I'm thinking, oh, boy. And then, okay, I've got to quickly get back because I tee off the next morning. Uh, well, anyway, I got there and said, whatever happens, just keep this simple. You can't make it more than Just keep it simple, stupid. And, you know, the, the simplicity worked, and I ended up winning once again. That's incredible. Well, fantastic stories. I know it's a special week for you, as I said earlier, a special week for the family. You know, your son qualified for a 2011 U.S. Open, so I know there's nice memories with with the U.S. Open. Uh, I hope you're able to watch it. I hope you uh, hope you got a favorite picked out, and um, I hope we can do it. Uh, I hope we can do this again. I'd love to talk more about your incredible Hall of Fame career. I appreciate you joining me on the back of the range. Uh, you're welcome. If we go to the back of the range, the front of the range, you still got to practice, don't you? And there you have it. Special thanks to Hale Irwin for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range. Thanks to the Irwin family, as well as Swingwell Labs. You can learn more about them at swingwelllabs.com. Don't forget to follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram throughout the entire U.S. Open. And we'll see you next time here at the back of the range.